I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome back to For Your Ears Only. This is the Optimism Vaccine's premier James Bond podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, this is a very special day. We have made it. We started this years and years ago, and now we have finally reached our conclusion. I'm Jake Tropila, joined as always by my co-host, Jack Eason. Jack, how are you feeling this evening? Thought this day had never come, Jake. It's amazing. We we have we have a final film. As our listeners might remember, the whole the whole premise of this podcast was a a monthly countdown, film by film, to the release of the latest Bond film, the twenty fifth Bond film, and then it got delayed, and then it got mm-hmm. delayed a lot more. <laughs> so we've been we've been trying to keep things fun and light. We've been filling in with bond paraphernalia, you know, homages, rip-offs, various other kind of, you know, tie-ins, but we're we're back on the good stuff now. We're we're back in the real thing. And uh, it's it's good to, to have this available. Yeah, it's uh it's been quite a ride. Um we've uh we we started this, I think it was 4 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. We uh we went on the trek together with Dr. No way back when and yeah, we watched all the official and then unofficial films and uh spent the last several months like you said filling in with some spoofs and uh, uh side quests, I guess, you know, some good, some bad. But uh yeah, we started this. I don't even think the film we're about to discuss had a title. Uh it was just we knew it was coming and uh yeah, we uh we now have No Time to Die is this this episode and uh yeah it's a it's a bittersweet feeling but uh jack i i gotta throw it to you first man what what are your uh what are just your general thoughts on no time to die well jake it's good so (laughs) that's that's real encouraging i was um a little thrown as things developed in this one it's two hours 43 minutes long it's the longest bond movie ever it's kind of like oh Mm -hmm. okay well we'll we'll see how that goes no, this this is uh, we will get into the the minutia certainly, and I'm gonna I'm probably gonna bitch and moan about bits and pieces throughout like I always do. But no, this is a real slick, solid film and absolutely a great send off for the Craig era, um, and really kind of caps yeah. off a, a cycle of films. We'll talk more about that down the line about what that might mean, but um, yeah, No Time mm-hmm. to Die is certainly you know a kind of a film that really brings to a crescendo a series of films it's not simply you know we're not in the standalone bond era so i was i was impressed yeah uh sitting there in the cinema just it just ticked right on by kept me entertained engaged didn't think about my butt going numb nothing like that didn't even have concessions just sat there and quiet contemplation for the whole thing very easy so what more could you ask for what more could you ask for indeed um yeah a- excellent very happy to hear that you know I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to this discussion uh yeah let me say you know eagerly anticipated i absolutely loved this film uh i think it's it's like you said it's a fitting and thrilling conclusion to the craig era and to a this era of bond 
it's uh, I think it would I would say it's Craig's second best film to Casino Royale. And I would even go so far as to say this is in uh, maybe the top 10 Bond films of all time. I uh, I really adored this one with a fiery passion. And now we are here to tell you all about it. Um, we're we're going to go through the film as we uh, as we tend tend to, you know, as tradition. But uh, just, you know, word of the wise, th- those are our general thoughts. Uh, we are going to be going into heavy spoiler territory. If you've somehow managed to avoid the spoilers uh, like I did and Jack did before we saw the film, uh, you would be much better off if you are still interested in watching No Time to Die. So this uh, consider this your warning. We're uh, going to get into things uh, right now. Oh, yeah, we're going to blurt out everything that happens to this thing. So... And there's some stuff That's that right. happens here that it's never happened before. So yeah, don't spoil yeah, it. Check it out. We're we're gonna get into all of that. Um, but yeah, so first uh, film opens. We got a traditional gun barrel. Takes us into a snowy landscape in uh, Norway, where uh, we get a prologue of a character's backstory. It's uh, Madeline Swan, Leia Sedu from the first film. Here she's played by a young girl, and uh, she's living out in the middle of nowhere with her mother. Uh, they're visited by a man named Lucifer Safin, Lucifer Satan, uh, who is on some sort of twisted revenge mission that we don't know much of at this point. Uh, he kills Madeline's mother, and then he sets his uh, targets on Madeline. She proves to be pretty resourceful. She shoots him with a gun that's stored underneath the sink and runs out into the ice, but it cracks and she falls below the depths. And uh, this is a pretty, uh, pretty effective opening. I think it's it's quite chilling. It's kind of, kind of, kind of terrifying in, in in parts. How did you, how did you feel about how this starts? Yeah, great, great, uh, solid opening. It's it's kind of interesting to look at the way the Bond films develop in the Craig era, particularly. And I'm probably gonna keep returning to like variations on this point, but. The cold open for previous Bond films or the pre-credit sequence, I suppose, was always supposed to be like a standalone, you know, just kind of action spectacular, just kind of like a, a thought run to its conclusion that couldn't be fit in anywhere else. So it just it existed before the credits. They're often, you know, quite playful or fun or whatever. And uh, No Time yeah. to Die loading up on the back of, of four Daniel Craig films. And Craig, there, there was discussion prior to this that Daniel Craig might was uh, some people said was offered ludicrous money like a hundred hundred and fifty million dollars to return for two more bond films and he was refusing because it was just like frankly because it seemed like just the physicality of the films was wearing on him and the the time constraints everything he's just he was genuinely doing the danny glover murtaugh thing he's just getting too old for this (laughs) shit so he you know he he came down basically that this is going to be his final film so we know this is going to be the last of of this particular era of bond and to that yeah. end the, the pre-credit sequence is not it's not only not a separate vignette it is uh, two separate uh kind of exposition scenes to set us up for the film to come so there's there's a lot yeah. to get through in this film this like you say i think is very uh very successful in terms of like a great cold kind of clinical sequence of this girl trapped alone her mother's just doped out kind of on pills and alcohol obviously yeah. Yeah, and a, a not very involved mother the father of course is mr white who not really a great dad either based on what we've seen in previous films certainly comes with nope. comes with some problems so um and yeah our our main villain who we, we don't really know he's the main villain yet he, he arrives in a kind of a in no japanese no theater mask 
And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's kind of just, uh, we don't know what the stakes are. It's just, he's clearly there to kill people. He kills the mother. He's chasing the girl. She's scared out of her wits doing all this thing. She falls in the ice. We don't know. We don't know what the setup is, but we know it's something that will be harked back to. Pretty solid. Um, and normally the, as I say, normally the opening credits roll after this, but no, instead we, we fire off to Italy and to the present day, except it's not actually the present day because later on the movie has like a five years later credit. So the that's, present day right. kind of, there's there's a lot going on here. So it, <laughs> we go to we go to present day Spectre time, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and an immediate follow-up to Spectre with, with Bond and uh, Madeline Swan sunning themselves in Italy, the ideal beautiful people couple chilling out and relaxing um and so so this is our second pre-credit sequence and it's um i don't even know how long this one runs for i feel like it's at least 20 25 minutes before the opening credits actually hit but this one kind of really sets sets up the main storyline uh to give a, a brief overview we have uh bond and madeline swan very much in love seem to be having a wonderful time bond goes to close the the door on vesper lind the the casino royale femme who who he is uh still mm-hmm. smitten by madeline requests he try and close close the door on that chapter of his life that's the only way to move forward he obliges realizes that's probably sensible enough goes to visit her grave it explodes just after he finds a specter calling card so we know something's up, and it looks like Madeline maybe ratted him out, uh, and and so he has to drag her away. He's chased by a bunch of guys. There's a big bunch of action sequences, and then he departs. He leaves her on a train and says he'll never see her again. That's the general yeah. overview. Let's go into the depth, Jake, on this one. I mean, I'm guessing you, I'm guessing you, you loved this, right? <laughs> this- uh, so you know, obviously, uh, first let me just say, okay, several things going into this film. One. It, when Spectre was released, uh, like the post-film press, Craig was not exactly kind to that film. I mean, he was quoted as saying he'd rather slit his wrists than do another Bond right. film. Uh, but, you know, it turns out it only took several years and $50 million later to coax him back into a role that made him fa- a superstar. Us? Yeah, so, but, but uh, yeah, but Spectre kind of offered this this pseudo-conclusion where Bond, and, Bond effectively leaves the service, uh, although that's not outright stated, it's sort of implied, and he kind of rides off into the sunset with uh, Madeline, which I mean, for for any typical Bond, that you know that could be a, a fitting end to an era, um, at, at least with the other you know films. But yeah, so this uh, you know going into this, I had like I I wasn't sure how I was gonna you know how how the film would be. Basically, I I as soon as the film screened in London, this came out a week before it came out in theaters in the US. And I, I basically ghosted the internet. I, you know, I, <laughs> I hid, hid the apps on my phone. I didn't go on Twitter, Letterboxd. I didn't want to know anyone's, I didn't even want to know what anyone's th- like star ratings were on this film. If they saw it before me, I wanted to know nothing. So, you know, I had, I had some, some, ca- I proceeded with caution how this film was going to be. Uh, the stuff in Italy put me at ease almost immediately. Uh, it's it, the the film looks gorgeous. Uh, it's like I mean, Skyfall is often touted as like the best looking Bond film, but I think this gives it a a run for its money. It's very lush. It's very stunning. Um, I was a little nervous about Hans Zimmer doing the score because I know he's he's usually just a very bombastic composer, but I think he hits a lot of great Bond esque notes. He's very he's pulling a lot of John Barry here, which I like, and yeah, the the very 
relaxed pace of this opening before it goes into the thrilling uh, car chase. I I loved all of this. Um, I you know I loved Bond and and Matera with uh, Madeline. I loved him visiting Vesper's grave. I love the explosion that kicks things off. The chase is great. The jump off the bridge is great. We get the Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger makes a return. It's got the strongest bulletproof windows I've ever seen. I uh, this is this is just good stuff. And yeah, I apologize if I'm just going to be a, a, a gush fest for the next 90 minutes or however long this podcast is. But yeah, this this all just worked tremendously for me. I I was just at ease and at home in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I don't think you're wrong necessarily. Um, you know, I I think this is uh this is a real strong opening. It's got all the elements, everything you would request for Bond. Beautiful scenario. This like rural Italian uh, villages. What well, one of those villages that looks like it was like hewn out of a mountain. Uh, you know that yeah. very specific look. All these staircases, multiple layers of roads and stuff. So when they start start chasing, there's our, we're introduced to our our first uh, henchman of the film with uh, Primo, also known as Cyclops, mm-hmm. played by Dali Bensala who has one eye, bionic eye, which is like his, his main thing, but he's another bruiser, very capable action forward henchman who chases Bond in a motorcycle. It looks like Bond maybe yeah. chokes him out, but he doesn't kill him. He just pop his eye out, you know, that's something that'll happen. That's how you know he is a bionic one. Um, and yeah, we've got, yeah. we got a couple of great stunts in here. We've got the Bond jump off the bridge. Well, I guess first off, we have this uh, kind of just a clever usage. Almost feels like something they would have like thought of on the day um, where Bond basically has a car running at him full speed. Uh, he, there's no space on this tiny little narrow bridge to, run, jump, to kind of get out of the way of the car. So he sees that there's like this stone hump down by the side so he huddles mm-hmm. in around the hump and the car tire hits the hump and like launches the car in the air so it bounces over him which is a great like um just a, you know a kind of a, an interesting kind of a sequence sort of uh kind of yeah minimal but it gets all the threat gets all the action it's something you don't see very often then we have um a lot of motorcycles that well we have bond jumps off the bridge first grabbing onto wires so we get a big jump which is, you know, every Bond movie has to have a big jump. And then we have this fantastic, probably one of the best stunts, honestly, in the whole film, which is uh, once Bond secures his uh, a motorcycle, kind of just like fires up a steep rock, steep stone staircase and, and kind yeah. of shoots vaults off the end of it into the main plaza. It's a really fantastic stunt. I don't know if... I don't know if everything there is done practically. There's this very quick camera pan up to it that I wonder is maybe used to elongate the staircase a little bit to give more sense of speed. But apparently they did um, pour Coca-Cola all over this village. They they just... Uh, this is apparently a stunt trick you can do. You pour Coke no. syrup everywhere, the Coca-Cola syrup everywhere, right? And you let it dry and everything's sticky and that means tires just have a little bit more adhesion. They skid out a little bit less. Gives you, I guess, more safety when you were firing a motorcycle up a staircase. And then afterwards, you hose it all down. Yeah. Apparently, it will clean the stone really well. It's it's a whole a whole thing. So um, there's a lot of really good stuff wrapped in. There's, I mean, this this action sequence would be the finale oh, yeah. in in a cheaper movie. Uh, this is a yeah. very expensive movie. Every frame of it looks tremendously expensive yeah it's it's really just a testament to 
I like I like Bond. I think you know you stack all the good franchises or all the big franchises rather next to each other. I think Bond is the it's the best and most reliable thing we got. It's it goes out of its way to look good. It's it's you know everyone is in it to do their best work. I I think you know that's it's why I love this series and and this this yeah the motorcycle stunt it's very Steve McQueen Great Escape esque uh, he like almost drives through a like a funeral procession that's happening um, yeah it's it's all looks fantastic and uh, yeah Kerry Joji Fukunaga is the director um, he's probably most famous for season one of True Detective he's directed a few other films as well but the, he's he's brings really a, a robust robust like sense of I don't know muscle to the to the action sequences like this stuff's good all this action and later on in the film is all it's all just great looking and great feeling and sounding yeah it's it's uh, really yeah. nice to to show up to a movie like this and and have that that emphasis on practical effects that at this stage i mean really bond and mission impossible are really one of the the, the only two franchises working at that kind of financial level that are yeah doing this i mean you've got like your john wicks and stuff but they're nowhere near as expensive as these um right you know these right. these are playing alongside you know the marvel movies which are absolute just you know completely cg uh have no 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 real moving parts whatsoever which you know i'm you know whatever i'm not a fan of them but you know if nothing else they certainly are not competing or or trying to emulate what bond does is a completely different ideology behind their their production and this is right. a much more classical much more and to me a much more pleasing version you know you can't go wrong with a couple of guys in motor vehicles pooting around doing crazy shit that's 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 why i show up to the movies um <clears throat> so yeah mm -hmm. it's 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 great um and all of this this chase is of course is to get back to madeline who bond picks up and then she gets her phone call from blofeld stating yeah. basically uh, congratulating her on setting up bond and saying that it was wonder you know thanking her for her sacrifice so it is implanted in bond's mind that he's been double crossed by her how else would he how else would would anyone have known he was visiting vesper's grave that day so uh yeah it's, right. it's, it kind of sets up um got almost extra sour you know like on her majesty's secret service ended with bond getting married and driving away and then his wife getting machine gunned tragically uh you know which is the sort of thing that happens when you're bond you've got some bad luck on the big things and, and good luck and all the other little bits you always escape but at what cost but uh this is sort of yeah. um playing out you know things are looking good and then they get soured again did he trust the wrong woman again which was always just the the thing that poisoned his chalice in, in casino royale was that he fell hard for vesper and then you know, turned out that she was not operating on his side. Um, although it's later mm -hmm. revealed that she was under some duress as well. She wasn't actually an out-and-out -out villain, but probably small right. consolation, really. So, yeah, we it kind of... And it resets the film again. It kind of, like, it... it all, all this before the credits really kind of, like, lets us know that, uh, you know, we can go anywhere at this point in the movie. You know, he's kind of cut loose from, from Swan. We, Frank, we may never see her again in the movie, but spoiler alert, we do. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's good. Uh, this is, uh, as much as I think about, you know, exposition and how very kind of plot-heavy and dense this film is to close off uh, kind of the first series of Bond films that are interlinked story-wise. Um, right. It's, it's done very kind of intelligently and cleverly, which admittedly is something I feel like, you know, has really come along 
the Marvel movies, frankly, you can we can complain all day about, you know, the MCU or whatever, but they are they have done an enormous amount of work on pacing their films to kind of like meter them along so they never really lose structure or pace. It's just a question yeah. of whether or not they had anything worthwhile while they're moving along. But like they're like junk food. They're always, you know, incredibly reliable and satisfying if you're into that sort of thing. And, um, you know, so so this right. film is is that too. But I think working with, per, frankly, I think much better ingredients. This is like upscale junk food. Uh, if you would like it. So, oh, yeah. you know, it's very nice. It's very satisfying. It's like, you know, farm to table burger, you know, very easy to eat, but very good, you know, so. Yeah, it, the thing about Marvel, so just, just, I mean, we're going to compare this to Marvel because, I mean, wh why, why, why wouldn't we? It's, you know, the closest analog we got to big blockbusters right now, but um, like with Marvel, every movie is like just so planned to the, like several films ahead and each film is really only an extended preview for the next film yeah and then they have like they have like the next dozen or 16 films lined up you know it's 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 very safe it's very planned people can get excited how much they want when somebody like chloe zhao signs up to do a marvel film she's still just going to get sucked into the machine a lot of the work is just going to be pre-vis stuff that she has nothing to do with um so yeah there's no there's no real sense of like vision or and once a film is released and people go see it you know that's they kind of just drop it and wait for the next thing the beauty of bond movies is that you can take anybody could have a different favorite bond film even with the heavily serialized craig ones you know somebody could say oh i think you know specter might be my favorite or i really like quantum of solace you know there's people out there who can identify any single one of these and watch it and enjoy it as a standalone film and uh, i think that's uh, that's great i think that's you know that's something to behold oh yeah but, absolutely uh, yeah, so you're going back to the uh, the end of our pre-title sequence. I think it's uh, I think it's about 24 minutes I clocked before we uh, get to the uh, open credits. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned up top, Bond puts uh, Madeline on a train. He says, "I'll never see you again." The train takes off, uh, and then we hear this.
Yes. So this is, uh, of course, Billie Eilish's theme song, which uh, came out 20 months before the film did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you uh, if you're waiting for the movie to come out to hear it, uh, you had to wait a very long time. Um, but uh, Jack, what are your overall thoughts on the song? Uh, I'm again like a lot of the Bond themes. I gotta say this one, God, this one has a tough role. Frankly, um, I didn't think it was a particularly memorable song, but it's fine. Um, you know, uh, yeah. the the I think it's cruel that this film is then paired up against We Have All the Time in the World, which is the recurring. They they re- kind of moved that Bond song from On Her Majesty's Secret Service back into the fold in this one, and it is. Frankly, I think without question to me, the greatest piece of music associated with the Bond franchise. Like it's it's a wonderful song. It's it's a cut above even even the Duran Duran title theme, which I very much enjoy. It's not Louis right. Armstrong singing this oh. beautiful song. Uh, so that's it's kind of rough because that plays. Uh, I don't I don't recall. I think that that plays while they're driving earlier, like at the pre credit sequence, we already have that song echoed in the score uh, we have all the time in the world because they as they're driving mm-hmm. on their aston martin of course it recalls for bond fi- fans the uh honor majesty secret service you know an ideal relationship that bond is actually in love and happy so you know something's gonna go wrong with that um yeah, yeah. This, this song is it's it's a bond song it, it very much fits the mode um it's unusual since uh, as pointed out like billy eilish was uh, what 18 i believe when she recorded yeah. this so frank i mean jesus she was like three years old when daniel craig first played <laughs> bond like she, she's barely older than this section of the franchise let alone the whole thing like so it's kind of crazy on that front it fits though you know it, it to me not a very memorable song frankly mm-hmm. um but again you know, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really. Uh, I I don't know if that's the worst thing. Uh, honestly, sometimes I feel like just fitting. You know, it fits the mode of the movie, so I think right. that's good. It's it's better than when sometimes when the song kicks in in the movie and you're like, oh, that's that's a bit off. Uh, this doesn't do that. So you know, good enough for me personally. Yeah, I like it. I think it does work better because I I had heard it a bunch before the film came out. I think it works a lot better in context. Um, I think, uh, yeah, but I do enjoy the song. I think the opening visuals are very neat. There's a lot of clock imagery. There's this cool thing where these, this like row of, uh, double helix Walter PPKs fire their bullets and they form like the strands of DNA. I will plays into the film. Yeah, I, I will admit uh, I laughed when I saw that image. That's so like on the nose of like gunfires <laughs> in his DNA. But then frankly, it actually does feed into the like core plot element. Off. So, you know, who could complain? And then the bullets continue to fly with like smoke yeah. pluming from them and start to form pictures of of major characters from previous films like Vesper and so on and M. So there's, you know, we kind of like... Yeah, it, this works. You know, it's it very much feels like a culmination. The entire, you know, everything at this point is is gearing us towards this being the culmination of kind of a whole arc, a whole saga that we've we've been invested in. So yeah, you know, I mean, this all this all fits pretty well for me. I don't think you know why why would you reinvent the wheel at this point? You know, it's it's working. Just keep going yeah. forward. And and you know what really made me excited was um, the first images that kind of take us into the gun bear or the pre title or the title sequence are the little bubbles from the Doctor No opening. I don't know if you remember oh, just how right. minimalist that title credits was, but it, like as soon as I saw those little dots appear on the screen and it says like Eowyn and Albert or Broccoli present and 
or Barbara Broccoli presents. And I just, I like, I got so excited just seeing those little bubbles. I had not made that connection because you're right, because the, the opening title of the film is in a different font to the the main advert yeah. titles. And that is, you're right, it, it's to rope in the Dr. No uh, schema, which, yeah, ni- nice touch. There's certainly a yeah. couple of nods back to history throughout this film as, you know, why would you resist at this point? I mean, this is this is the twenty fifth film in the in the official Eon franchise, so that's that's a pretty yeah. big landmark. Anyway, you spin it, even if you hate Bond movies, twenty five is uh, not insignificant. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's great. There's a lot of actually doc, uh, Doctor No references, which we'll get into, but uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, so far so good here. Uh, after the title sequence, we cut to five years later. Uh, a secret MI6 laboratory containing Project Heracles is raided by Spectre agents who leave everyone dead except for one scientist uh, whose name I don't have written down, but he's played Dave. by David Densick. Valdo Obrushev, another yeah, Russian-esque uh, man of science, of evil science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the basically Project Heracles is is our MacGuffin. It's, uh, it, it's also kind of wild to think that like we we, when you think of bond you think of a film that series that is just kind of aping what's popular like this movie predict the pandemic because what they've created it's like it's a targeted bioweapon made up of nanobots that will kill you if you touch it so unless you stay socially distanced there's basically this is the world's it's supposed to be like the world's like cleanest assassination as you know as designated by mi6 but it's it's kind of funny to think that like in of everything else, Bond is trying to predict the pandemic from happening in this movie. It is. It's also, of course, as a DNA specific virus, effectively, uh, it, it is also yeah. a Metal Gear Solid plot component. Uh, the Fox Die virus of, of Hideo, right. Hideo Kojima's oh uh, games is uh, the exact same thing. So I was like, oh, man, Bond does Fox Die now. But anyhow, uh, you know, similar similar ideas. It's only a matter of time before those two franchises were probably in mesh at some point. Um, you know, uh, frankly, hard to work out which one of them is more soap operatic and wild. Honestly, they're pretty they're closer than you might think on first look. But uh, yeah, yeah, they, they this is also where we're introduced to kind of one of our aside from the bionic eye, we're introduced to one of our first big gadgets, which is uh, they escape from the lab by dropping this like. It looks like an old World War Two bomb, but it has all these like little red lights mm-hmm. on it. And as it drop, they drop it down an empty lift shaft, and the little red things detach and stick to the wall. And they turn; they're like little magnets, so you can create this like anti gravity field. So they all switch yeah. on, and everyone has uh, matching magnetic suits, and they can just jump down, and they're helpfully come to a gentle stop at the bottom, and then they can turn it off and drop down the last way, which is kind of a cool little thing. Um. And yeah, I mean, yeah. as you say, this is really just setting up. There's a virus. It's very dangerous. You can program in anyone's DNA. And then the nanobots, if they come in contact with that one person in the entire world, will kill them instantly. Uh, what more do you need? That That's obviously a serious problem. <laughs> Bond will have to intervene. Yeah, absolutely is. Uh, so meanwhile, speaking of Bond, he's off in Jamaica. He's kind of retired from the world. Uh, and he's tracked down by our old pal Felix Leiter, Jeffrey Wright, the first lighter to return for a third film. Uh, he's uh, he's back. He's great. He and uh, Craig share a very nice uh, chemistry and camaraderie. I really enjoy their scenes together. Um, but yeah, he hires Bond 
to uh, team up with the CIA to uh, track down this uh, this spec. Basically, the Spectre event has the virus, and they're going to try to get the scientist who's there, and also try to prevent the you know the outbreak of the of this deadly virus. Uh, meanwhile, MI6 has a new 007 named Noni, Nomi, played by uh, Lashana Lynch. She's just been promoted two years prior to the events of the film, and she's also tasked by M to head over to Jamaica to uh, obtain the scientist and the virus for herself. Um, so that leads us to Cuba, where we get uh, one of the other stunning highlights of the film, which is uh, led by the great Ana de Armas as Paloma. Uh, Jack, what did you think of Paloma? This is this was fun. Um, yeah, there, there's this is where the plot yeah. the plot starts to like. I'm starting to think like, the, you know, because in the whole thing, the whole thing was like Spectre was the big enemy and event, and Spectre felt like it was all building to something. And then obviously Blofeld was captured in Spectre, but it, it felt mm-hmm. quite anticlimactic. And I, and I actually I enjoyed Spectre as discussed in our podcast, but you know I, I would acknowledge it certainly felt anticlimactic. So I assumed this film would carry it on. We, you know, we'd get the 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 last hurrah, the true strength of Spectre. Because uh, up until this point, it's largely just been a bunch of guys like bureaucrats just kind of just doing whatever, you know, you know, underhanded stock market deals or whatever. Um, yeah. And so, you know, a big Spectre party in Cuba, that seems like it will be the start of things. Uh, it's really funny since it went from Spectre being this super... Um, secretive organization that basically bond who's been out of the out of the field for like five years is walking through there with paloma and going like oh yeah all these guys are specter agents i recognize that guy and that guy and that guy kind of strange how those have turned but who knows i guess bond probably even retired probably keeps his eye on things you know um but he's a meets up with anna de armas as paloma who uh, I know a lot of people were like man i wish she was in this movie more you know but honestly i think she just kind of lights up this scene it's a, a really clever utilization of her she's basically his contact on the ground um mm-hmm. plays it off that she's just got you know i've I just got three weeks training this is my first field mission like oh i hope it goes well you know when bond is like what have i got myself into and then it turns out that like she's just an absolute machine uh, on on yeah. the you know she's just like throwing around like machine guns and kung fu kicking and doing everything and sharing a drink with Bond in the middle of all of that and you know they they actually have tremendous chemistry arguably better chemistry than Bond has with most of the women he ends up falling in love with there's like an almost an, an irony to that I mean this is truly his equal on the field. That okay, that the drink bit I love so much because part of what I l- enjoy about these movies is just there's so much charm in them, and it's not that Bond is so cool and capable he can clear a room full of guys, but it's that he'll pause the action so that he can take a drink with another gal and before they resume, and that's that's just like just little character bits like that I just I adore, uh, and and yeah, like you said, Paloma is wonderful. I, I really wish she steals the whole movie just in this segment alone. And I really wish she was in it more. If if anyone deserves this Bond spinoff, it's her. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's interesting because I absolutely looking at that. I was like, man, I could I could see the Paloma series. But I, I believe recently news broke potentially of Darmus doing a John Wick spinoff. Uh, playing with one of the ballerinas, which, you know, there's there's John Wick lore about this ballet school in the first film or whatever i think it was in the first movie where there was the the ballerina that he meets briefly 
Um, mm-hmm. But anyhow, so she may she may go that route as becoming a, an action star. More, you know, I it's it's kind of cool, um, you know, that we're getting more female led action films in Hollywood now. Finally, they're like catching up with what like Hong Kong has been doing for decades. Um, so that's that's kind of cool. Although I will admit, uh, and this isn't this isn't solely for the female led ones, but like all the action movies right now seem to be just John Wick. Uh, they they're all they're all seem to be reading from the exact same style book, but we'll see what happens. I reserve judgment. Frankly, honestly, if it's just like John Wick, I'm still gonna enjoy myself, so I can't complain too much. But yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a really smart um, utilization that she basically just comes in, kind of wipes the floor with everything, kind of works really well with Bond. Uh, we should mention prior to all hell breaking loose, the uh, virus is dropped. We 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 see uh, Obrashev the the guy he's with cyclops the henchman again and he's programming right. the virus with a specific dna code and we don't know whose dna code it is but obershev actually palms the usb card and gets another one and sticks it in and actually unbeknownst to cyclops the henchman uploads obviously a series of different codes and we don't know what that will mean until in the next sequence um it turns out that Blofeld is still commanding through this bionic eye held up on like a, a tray. He's yeah. basically using this as like he's video conferencing, he's zooming. Again, they predicted the whole COVID thing. This is <laughs> that's, remarkable. That's right. So it's it's he's, a Zoom conference call for Spectre. He can't physically be there, but because, you know, he's incarcerated in London. But uh, yeah, he's he's attending. It's I think if this is also it's am I not mistaken is that this is Blofeld's birthday party and uh, it's yes. just Spectre out and out in the open having a grand old time. But basically, yeah, the mission, the mission there. So, yeah, the mission for them is they're going to use the targeted nanobots to kill Bond. But then uh, uh, Obrachov is he switches it and he's secretly working for Safin, Rami Malik. We didn't mention that. Uh, Yeah. The guy in the opening is Rami Malik. He's our villain. He's working with him. He switches out USB drives and programs the virus to basically kill all of the heads of Spectre. Um, so Spectre is effectively wiped out in this sequence, and the only person left is Blofeld, who's in a prison cell. But uh, yeah, so there's uh, that leads into chaos and confusion. Uh, Paloma and Bond take action. They escape, and then uh, Bond meets up with uh, Felix Leiter, who's got a new CIA partner of his own, Logan Ash, played by uh, Billy Magnuson. And uh, yeah, they go out onto a boat uh, to discuss what just happened when it's revealed that Logan Ash... Surprise is a traitor, and he uh, escapes with the scientists, but not before leaving Felix Leiter mortally wounded. Um, and uh, yeah, Felix Leiter actually dies in this movie, which you know he's, his life has been threatened before. But uh, yeah, this is, I guess, with the end of an era, you can you can take some sort of creative liberties. And I, yeah. I was I was kind of stunned that uh, this happened. Yeah, you see, he's he survived getting half eaten by a shark in another movie this time yeah no such look actually dead yeah it, it brings a, again an emotional stake that's brought in uh the the friendship between bond and lighter is is one of those kind of like it it's there's enough lore there and and movies now that it's kind of like they don't mm-hmm. have to label it too much that they're just very good friends they're kind of like you know, they, they, they certainly have, have an overlap of experience and sympathies, even though they often operate somewhat at loggerheads of different intelligence organizations that are technically allied, but also have their own interests in in place. So, yeah, yeah. You, you can tell, obviously, that uh, when when Logan Ash kills Felix Leiter and then escapes, that uh, 
there, there will probably be payback but if we if we wind back a little bit to the every specter agent being killed it's it's sort of this is one of my, my reservations about the film is that there's um as i say specter kind of ends on a an anticlimactic note I feel like yeah. in in the the Craig era, we never really got a sense of Spectre flexing their muscles in any kind of a significant way. They were just very much like we're so secret. Like it went from we're so secret, no one knows about us, and we have agents everywhere, and we can do anything we want. We can kidnap M. We have like people right, you know, people in the room of the secretest, most powerful meetings in the world. You know, are working for us, and no one knows. And then ultimately, right. just kind of flutters out into nothing and now we have suddenly just some other guy and like frankly uh despite the pretty hilarious name of lucifer safin or safin uh you know which is like lucifer satan that's pretty funny anyway you, you square it you know he's uh, you know he's just he's just another guy he's a bad guy um his yeah. backstory essentially is just that uh, his family was murdered by specter so now he hates them um, you know, and he's a bit genocidal yeah, too. You know, he's, he's just a bad dude. But it's it feels like something of a, a reset. Like they just they never is an unexpected direction, sure. But I felt like there would be more to Spectre in this film that they would actually they were holding back a little bit. Apparently not. They're done with Spectre. Spectre's done after all the f decades of legal battles, just so they could use the term Spectre. They kind of they're just ah eh, well whatever we're done. And you know it's it's a little bit kind of confusing and maybe a little disappointing they didn't come up with something a little bit more compelling on that level but you yeah. know so so be it um it is interesting as well in that cuba sequence that we have two 007s effectively in the field because uh nomi lashana lynch's character has recently been granted that call sign as well which i i don't know if that uh well, there is a running theory that the Bonds are all, you know, that James Bond and 007 are basically both code names and, and you know, are yeah. transferred. Yeah. yeah, it's not true because the movies themselves contradict that because James Bond's desk has stuff from previous movies in it. So it's nonsense. Yeah. But anyhow, it but, but this movie does say that they can recycle the 007 at least. So it's kind of interesting. Here's our first movie where, where we have two 007s in the field simultaneously, effectively, an official and an unofficial. And, uh, of course, the unofficial, our, our main man, triumphs through just slightly more canny uh, use of the, the terrain and so on. But, um, yeah, no, yeah. We're, we're clipping along nicely here. This is, like, it's it's a nice mixture of, like, exposition dumped action sequence and action sequences that also dump exposition uh very very smooth sailing uh so yeah. and at this point we're like what like an hour at least into the movie uh which it doesn't really feel like that it's it's really working very well yeah no the thing the good thing about bond films is that if you're having a good time they never feel long and you know you're it's it's like uh i think ebert is you know quoted as saying this like a good film is not too long and a bad film is not too short or something like that but yeah, the, this uh, this is this is just a, a wonderful Bond film that I just wanted to kind of live in, and I'm glad uh, for for it being a final film of an era. I'm glad it, it took the time to go out as long as it did. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's great stuff. What did you, what are your thoughts on uh, Nomi? I think she's really good as well. Um, you know, she's capable with a quip and a gun. And I think you know if if like for talking Bond spinoffs, if there was like something with her, I would not be interested. I think she's she's pretty good as well. Yeah, um, my only issue with Nomi, I guess, and this this is something I think is mm -hmm. is time is going to time will tell on this one is 
we we know uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge was brought in at very late stages script rewrites to basically yeah. polish and punch up the script and kind of bring some humor in. Particularly, is what her her specialty would be. Uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge, for people who don't know, is did Fleabag and uh, has what she did Killing Eve as well. She did some work on that and a few other. Or is it Killing Eve? Is that the name of that TV show? Something like that. Yeah. Um, Killing and, Eve and yeah. So so. She's done a yeah. few few bits and pieces, acting, writing. I think Fleabag certainly is excellent. I think it's a it's a really a really clever piece of TV. Um, both seasons uh, really kind of defy expectation. Um, but Wallerbridge certainly has a very specific cadence to her writing and to her kind of her style. Um, and my but like and it's it's it kind of not exactly a complaint so much as a, as a. a kind of identification that Nomi seems very much to speak in Waller Bridge's voice. I feel like that character was mm-hmm. fully her responsibility to kind of round out and do stuff with. And it's kind of, and the problem there for me is that I think Waller Bridge's best work, particularly in Fleabag, is not exactly conducive to a PG-13 James Bond movie. Uh, she goes she goes deep on kind of perversity and and uh you know kind of like swearing and so on so uh, some of nomi's elements and her jokes and stuff kind of fall into that kind of very contemporary comedy kind of voice of oh well that happened or oh you're very rude and you know when someone tries to shoot her that sort of thing uh you know it's carried off well enough it's just sort of like I say, I, I think it might this might be something that's very interesting to look back on in a couple of years if maybe the kind of status quo of that kind of writing has changed a little bit. I feel like we're still living in, like, Joss Whedon's world somehow from, like, yeah. the mid-90s. Like, that kind of comedy voice is still dominated for, like, 25 years. Um, and at one time it was very fresh and interesting, and now it's kind of become this sort of, like... You know, there's 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 seven jokes, and they're always played out in in different orders. Um, so you know, it's an interesting prospect, I think certainly. Um, to have a obviously a female agent, a black agent, you know, so so we have kind of different elements. None of that really comes to the fore in this film, but I you know I'd be interesting to see what they do next, and I guess towards the end of this this podcast will probably discuss you know wh- where would we like to see this this uh james bond go next considering there will yeah. be another one um so yeah interesting i you know it kind of it certainly we've never done this before there's never we've had 006 and we've had 003 or whatever who i don't know who was murdered when clown outfit in uh and what's this i don't, <laughs> I don't remember which roger Moore was an octopussy yeah you know yeah. we've had other double o agents we've never had you know James Bond's direct successor who and it is interesting I think one of the kind of they maybe overplay the joke a little bit but like she's clearly a little insecure um mm. in the role that Bond's reputation is such that her getting the 007 uh, note was ex- is extremely important to her and extremely a point of pride and she tries to use that to needle bond but it's we're not exactly clear how upset if he's upset at all about you know his you know as she says you probably thought they retired the 007 when you left but they didn't and it's kind of like we don't know if he even cares but it's kind of interesting that she is very invested in that (laughs) you know obviously she wants to be him he's he's the guy they talk about in the training academy and so on so there's some clever 
kind of shorthand there to create a sort of uh you know they, they are obviously working for the same people towards the same ends but there's a little tension there there's you know a generational and a professional tension between them so mm-hmm. kind of interesting um and i don't know if this movie doesn't i think really pay off hugely on it but i think maybe introducing the idea like this maybe opens up we'll see i don't you know who knows what we'll do they're they're, all, they're always threatening james bond spinoffs and yet there's never been one i don't think like there's been james bond jr the animated tv series but like no <laughs> other bond character has actually got a spinoff that i can recall you know michelle yo was supposed to get one that never happened so, so it was a halle berry and die another day that's right yes but, uh... so you know i don't maybe maybe this one maybe this is the time i you know who <laughs> guess we'll find <laughs> out but um yeah, yeah it's it's all working pretty well at, at this level like i you know i really come back to um i will talk i guess larger about you know the the like i'm a little concerned for how these films and this this is a much larger problem than james bond or a much larger uh kind of uh situation than james bond but this kind of like the serialization of films is uh yeah there's there's definitely things you can mine there but i think there's also there's a trap in it and i feel like more and more television or you know more and more movies stories and scripts are becoming like television they're becoming serialized they're becoming you know payoffs and instead of like in tv where it's like the payoff is a year on like or you know the end of the season in 20 whatever weeks instead it's like five years down the line because they have to make a whole new movie but there's very much this eye towards you know but won't it be great when you can watch all five of these bond movies back to back on amc or whatever and it's kind of like uh i mean maybe i don't know that you know seems to be defeating the point a little bit for me and why i would approach movies generally so you know it's kind of interesting to see how these are all kind of interacting at this point we have there's so many ideas firing off in the craig era particularly um and some of them kind of are, are elevated some of them sort of peter out but there there is still very much an eye towards we're building something here you know film to film which is not really something that was done in in the previous bond previous bond films were much more standalone much more independently minded and there's an advantage to that too um and kind of yeah i'm I'm, you know you balance them out a little bit so i'm just a little i guess the long story short effectively is like i really hope bond i would prefer i think if bond was to return to single you know remove itself from multi-film arcs and this idea of kind of big dramatic payoffs based on lingering with storylines and situational elements for years um you know because that's like a tv thing too you know like the the last the final episode of a tv show is a big emotional thing because you've made you've sat with these these characters for like literally 10 years you know and that's something tv can lean into and it's kind of cheap and maudlin honestly it's it's you know it, it doesn't have to be in the context of how a tv show harnesses it but on its base level it's like right, friends right. shows up and it's like oh we've been friends for 10 years and it's like i don't give a shit go away but you know like but like it's there it's a real thing it's a part you know tv integrates in with people's lives in a way that's really kind of specific and special movies generally don't but we're seeing this now with with kind of the proliferation of digital uh, streaming and so on where movies can just be kind of 
disseminated much more easily now than they ever have before that we kind of movies are kind of becoming television and the technology that captures movies and reproduces them uh, and the television has become one and the same almost you know it's interesting this film specifically shoots in 65 mil uh, uses IMAX format for its action sequences which I think is very specifically a move to differentiate itself from television television right. is not doing that there is no IMAX home video variant um, uh, you know and, and yet but it's still leading into this kind of long term arc so it's you know and it has its advantages but I am worried that it's something and I'm worried it's never excuse me I'm worried it's never going to go away because Marvel has really again whether you like them or not the MCU has proven this is an extremely attractive model for forming a kind of a product a film universe product like a universe it's something that's right. kind of like this wasn't a standard uh you know 10 15 years ago this wasn't what everyone was doing this isn't what film had and now you know it's it's this huge thing and tv and you know television and, and film elements are being mingled and co-mingled and spinning in and out of each other between disney plus and and your local amc theater or whatever it's it's a whole thing um so yeah i i don't know this is a long me just kind of spiraling <laughs> off of the idea of you know you spin-offs potential and all of this stuff and specter disappearing and someone else coming in it's like it's strange how this bond arc has kind of fired up certain expectations and not provided them and then excelled in other ways and kind of surprised sometimes I think by mis by accident you know I'm not sure if it, there was so much that went on like Danny Boyle was originally going to uh, make this film and he and the script was written and he was working with a script guy and then there was uh, the the dreaded creative differences and Danny Boyle left and a new script completely was commissioned so it's very difficult to say what was actually intended here you know um Although I think there's also a testament to Bond versus, say, of some of the Disney films or the Marvel films, and that there, this seemed to be a complete change based on who was at the helm, and who was at the helm was a director. You know, when when Fukunaka came in, it was like things changed drastically when when he came in, um, and that's that's interesting. You know, in a way that it feels like uh, Marvel movies don't change drastically. Uh, I know what I guess the closest probably what the solo film where Lord and Miller got kicked off and they were kind of brought in Ron Howard as the most boring man in Hollywood to just sort of like sand off the edges and kind of deliver the good little product for for the company. Um, you know, as a good company man himself. But um, yeah, it kind of speaks to a sort of a. a you know this production tension i think this works out pretty well but i do have i guess overall some reserves about the craig era it worked it worked out pretty well for craig but i kind of don't i kind of hope they don't just keep doing this you know that we have another one it's like this bond has got you know chronic back pain and in four movies we're going to extrapolate what that means to him you know, and it'll be like, please don't do that. Just, you know, I like, you know, Dr. No, you know, the difference between all the, the, the Sean Connery Bonds above all else was just that he was in different countries, <laughs> you know, and that's fine. That works for me. Uh, I don't necessarily need this collective weight of lore in all yeah. of them. And like I say, and we'll just, and as we get to the end parts of this, they really lean into it in a very successful way. It's just, I don't know if it can be emulated again and again. And if it does, I feel like it could get pretty tiresome 
But uh, anyhow, we should probably get back to the movie. I've I've <laughs> dawdled on enough here. No, yeah, I just just to just to put it briefly, I think uh, uh, Barbara Brackley em- embrace the episodic nature of the previous Bonds uh, for the next uh, next guy, whoever that might be. Um, you know, I I we say we want the Paloma spinoff, but you know, frankly, I'm I'm fine without it. Uh, I'll even go so far as to say that if this is the last new Bond film I see in my life, I would not be unhappy with that. Um, I think uh, you know this is I have plenty of adventures to go to and uh. Yeah, just to go for more episodic lighter fare. Uh, Craig has been, he's, you know, he's great, but he's been very steely and broody in some of these. Um, but uh, that being said, I think, you know, I think Walder's screenplay, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's screenplay helps him loosen up a bit. And he's actually he seems very relaxed and charming back in the days of Casino Royale where he could, he brings great balance to his role. He's not just all in one mood. Um, you know, there's only only a few lines like uh, where he calls Logan Ash's character the Book of Mormon, where I kind of just quietly cringe to myself because like Bond doesn't typically make uh, um, pop culture references like that when he describes someone. That's definitely a Phoebe line that was written. But he, um, he may yeah, just be that, referring to the actual Book of Mormon. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's I, it's difficult to separate it from the hit Broadway play, but uh yeah, I yeah, I, I overall though I I did enjoy a, a lot of the the comedic flair that she and he bring to the film. Um, but uh, yeah, like you said, uh, we we don't need it, everything to be connected. We can we're we're fine without it. Uh, you know, it's it's something that they've kind of now really leaned into the uh, the Mission Impossible films is that they're now like the baddie and the number five is also the villain in number six, and they're all starting to bring back people from the first ones for the next one, and so. I guess in the end, we're all, I don't know, I guess there's a market of people who want to see everything come together. Frankly, I, suppose, I don't. And I suppose really, Fast and Furious invented this, well, didn't invent it, but popularized it for the modern era, probably even before Disney. Most people like to make fun of Vin Diesel. The man had a vision, yeah. uh, for sure. <laughs> you know, like he really did. Yeah. He, he His whole La Familia nonsense, which is stupid dumb as shit in the movies but like that's he did it like <laughs> like i can't fault him for it. the man the he man did it. did it the dumb son of a bitch did it uh, he and, did it <laughs> and you know the, the the fast and furious movies are are very much they were the they were a universe before iron man started off doing whatever whatever he was doing so you know yeah damn you vin diesel you you broke everything just because you loved corona and your buds hanging out yeah well Back to No Time to Die. Um, so last we left off, Bond returns to London. He gets the Aston Martin Vantage out of storage, which is the car from The Living Daylights, one of my favorite cars in my favorite films. Uh, he gets a visitor pass to go to MI6 to see M. They uh, have a talk about the virus, and Bond has real animosity towards him, which is great. Uh, then they go to see uh, Blofeld who to get some understanding as to what's going on with this virus and uh this is where uh madeline comes back into the picture and we see that she has a meeting with a new patient um who turns out to be safin from the opening he gives her a perfume which is loaded with nanobots to kill somebody who we don't quite know yet uh and then it's not until the meeting with blofeld that we realize the nanobots were targeted to him bond inadvertently touches her wrist and then grabs blofeld's throat with it that kills and that, and again this the first official time this has really happened Blofeld dies in the film how about that 
Um, yeah, well, other than that time, they dropped him down the smokestack from a helicopter. Well, but the- <laughs> that's that's why I said official, because some people argue that that is not Blofeld just because it's a cheap way to get rid of the character <laughs> who they didn't quite have rights for in 1981. But I, I you know, it's all good There's to me. certainly a metatextual element to that throwaway, like, here's the main guy and we just got rid of him. But yeah, it's... It's true, yeah. People are the big characters are dropping like flies in this movie so far. Felix Blofeld, you know. So yeah, yeah a big thing. And this is kind of an interesting sequence again because Bond is trying to trying to keep his temper, and he 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 does. He he's he's gonna kill Blofeld basically. He's gonna strangle him there, and he remembers, oh, that would be bad. So he he doesn't. But then ultimately, the virus kills Blofeld. So. Oops, if he hadn't actually grabbed him, if he kept his distance as as per protocols in the prison, maybe it wouldn't have worked. We're not we're never quite sure how close you have to get to <laughs> to initiate contact for this thing. They they keep that fuzzy so the the script can kind of work with whatever they got. But yeah, um so and of course Blofeld at this point as well has one eye removed uh, in this sequence because it turns out the whole time he's had a bionic eye that has escaped uh, detection and that's how he's been running Spectre even while kept in the highest security prison in in england which is a really fun setup like he's he's whisked into the into the interrogation room this like little trundling little like sideways moving elevator cart almost it's like the next step up for hannibal lecter's like mask but um yeah no more blofeld um and i'm trying to think where, where where do we go from there well, we get some stuff, some business back at MI6. Um, we get a few of our, you know, our, of course, our regulars. Eve Money Penny, played by Naomi Harris, is back. She's great. Um, who's really actually quite shines in this film, I think, is uh, Ben Wishaw as Q. Uh, we get a glimpse into his home life and his, his two hairless cats. I love Bond's line that he sees them and says, you know, they those come with fur now. Um, but uh, yeah, they, you know, he, they they help hack into the stolen the recovered eyeball from the Spectre party to see where like Logan Ash like has come from and uh, it it kind of just helps them basically put the pieces together yeah, as to who he's working for. You know you know you're watching a James Bond movie when they're hacking an eyeball. <laughs> Absolutely, um, but then we. Uh, Go back to Madeline's home in Norway, which is near this remote woodsy area. And as she and Bond are talking, uh, there's this sudden revelation that there is a child, a small, a young girl is in the house with them. And uh, Matilde, or Madeline, her name is Matilde. Uh, Madeline is quick to say that she's not Bond's, but, uh, you know, she's kind of wonder. Um, but yeah, uh, Madeline has a child now and she's been kept a secret from this world. And um, so Bond thus makes it his mission to protect the both of them. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on the the revelation of this little girl, Jack? Yes, this is a, a, a and this a cleverly draw kind of like straddles the line because the little girl she's very quick to say it's not yours, but she has these striking blue eyes, which of course is the Daniel Craig signature in these films. Uh, and right. I guess actually in all the films Daniel Craig is in, I think he is blue eyed in in reality. Uh, so you know it's it's immediately thrown in it's like wait does bond as a dad now that's that's also never happened before at least it's never been acknowledged frankly the way roger moore and sean connery carried on they were dads but they never never would have acknowledged it never you never would have tracked them down 
Daniel Craig is, uh, he's, he's, uh, you know, it's, it's 2021. You, you gotta do a little bit more than that now. So he's certainly, if nothing else, he, he's feelings for Madeline as much as he hates. Well, we should mention, of course, uh, in the meeting for Blofeld, Blofeld does, and this felt a little bit convenient to me, but so be it. Um, Blofeld decides to give Bond something. He, you know, he thinks he's still fooling Bond about some other things. So he, uh, throws him a bone and tells him that the whole thing his phone call to madeline in italy five years previously where he thanked her for setting up bond was entirely his own invention she actually had not betrayed him at all uh right. that seems the way blofeld works that seemed like a little bit of a, a giveaway kind of like to you know kind of just let that out for the audience as like look he's telling the truth this one time so we have like one ironclad piece of narrative to cling to to form you know, future bonds off of it kind of simplifies things because it imme- allows Bond to immediately soften towards Madeline again and basically to realize he fucked up again and ruined another relationship. <laughs> uh, oops. So he immediately finds her, has this child. They are in danger. He realizes that they're they're being tracked and they have to escape. So they get in a Toyota Land Cruiser, I believe, which is a not something you typically see Bond in uh, for sponsorship no. reasons, if nothing else. And they, they drive away, and guess what? We get another chase, because that's what this movie is about, largely. A couple of couple of uh, Range Rovers or whatever uh, appear uh, and are chasing him through the forest, and they, they have to go off-road. Um, another solid action set piece. Um, I will say for this film, I feel like there, there's a couple of really nice stunts throughout this. The action, to my mind, it never quite, like, ratchets up to something that's really, like breathtaking but it is really consistent throughout there's like and and yeah assured in its uh reality effectively like you can tell watching this they trashed a couple of suvs like it's not you know digital nonsense it's not you know computer animated i'm sure they augmented bits here and there there's tons of cg throughout this movie uh the entire final location is mostly a product of, of of computer generated graphics but you know when you want to when you want to flip a, a vehicle on a road they go out there and they flip a real vehicle on a real road because that's that's the way you do it that's that's the james bond uh motto and and frankly it's it's more of that please uh, i enjoy it so you know it's yeah. throughout this this whole sequence and this um this action sequence also it's not like as bravura driven as say the italian sequence earlier with like the really you know, like twisty mm-hmm. roads and everything. But this chase has, I think, a really solid kind of through line thesis to it in that Bond is chased by uh, SUVs and by motorcycles. And there's also a helicopter because why not? And he's kind of like, mm-hmm. it's a very paired back. It's not like people hanging out the windows shooting or anything. Bond just kind of like matches speed with some of them, tries to push them off the road here and there. He's trying to go across a lake uh, a river rather where the motorcyclists can't follow him so there's a kind of a clever utilization through this of him of bond basically understanding he's at a serious disadvantage he has two people in the back of the car who are you know very vulnerable and he just kind yeah. of starts using the environment to his advantage to try and shake off these people to try and like thin the herd and move away and eventually ends up driving into the forest so that the helicopter can't follow as well so while it's not maybe you know the most spectacular action sequence it has kind of an intelligent 
kind of a thesis behind it, which I think is something a lot of even very high profile action films lack entirely. Like an idea, an idea can go a long way towards forging a relationship with what's happening on film, even if it's not the most like wham bam incredible thing you've ever seen. So kudos to them for that. I think this is a very, again, very solid sequence. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you mentioned a great point mentioning that, um, like the, there's maybe nothing that hits a feet for pitch. Like I think I think as far as action goes, it kind of peaks with the parkour chase in uh, Casino Royale. Yeah. I mean that is, is just breathtaking. But the stuff that we get here is also really very good. And like you said, it's just because it remains consistent. Uh, like I love the chase of Bond. You know, trying to outmaneuver. He doesn't. He's you know, he, it's it's one thing to put him in a car that's like kind of lumbering. It doesn't have any gadgets. He just kind of has to use his surroundings and the environment to shake it off. But then when we get into the woods, I really love this stuff where Bond gives Madeline his gun. They hide in a little like shack that's just out there. And it's and then he kind of goes off as this hunter through the woods and he's like picking off dudes with a grenade launcher. Like he he trip like trip wires a guy in a motorcycle and then just shoots him as he lies on the ground. There's a lot of great little Bond moments in this sequence um and then the the real coup de gras is when logan ash flips his car over like a fucking idiot and uh, and as he's like bloodied and underneath like a suv that's kind of dangerously rolling down he like begs bond for forgiveness and like calls him brother and uh bond says i had a brother his name was felix Leiter. and then he kicks out the log that's holding up the suv Kind of like Roger Moore in For Your Eyes Only, and the vehicle just comes crashing down on Logan Ash and crushes his dumb ass in the woods. It's just great stuff. It's solid. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there's definitely um, this scene, I think, I guess from here on out, really highlights Bond as a very kind of like the, a lot of the violence here is it's not bloody or gory. They can't do that in a PG 13 movie, but there's a real kind of like perfunctory kind of like. Like, he just habitually, just casually, just, like, unloads, you know, two rounds here, two rounds there. Just, you know, guy is on the ground, he's disabled, let's make sure he can't get up again. Just, you know, shoot quick, keep moving. He is both drawing the people away. He, like, runs away from Madeline and and Mathilde and, like, shoots in the air to draw people, you know, assuming anyone gunfires what anyone would follow there. And then from there, he's drawing them and then he starts hunting them back as they start circling back to him. It's, this is, yeah, this is a really great kind of sequence of Bond functioning completely on instinct and, you know, completely to his, to his instinct, I guess is the thing, you know, if we've, we've discussed through, you know, his relationship with Judy Dench's M uh, was really all about kind of like giving this concept of how instinct is what separates Bond from every other agent. Uh, he just has, he's really good at functioning like that. When he starts mm-hmm. thinking in the earlier movies, things get a little ropier and he's obviously insubordinate and other things which cause him problems. But really, when it comes down to it, if you put Bond in a forest with a gun and have some people chase him, you would not fancy the other people. And not simply because obviously he's the hero of the movie. It's a sort of this thing that he's just a tremendously canny hunter of people or, you know, utilizer of his of all of his faculties. And this is, again, like I say, this this whole sequence just has a very strong idea guiding it. It's effective. It's 
exciting in it's exciting less so in terms of like uh, i've seen car crashes like all the ones in this before but they fit into this kind of like you know like like bond checking boxes effectively it's like there's x number of people in this forest and i need there to be less of them how do we make that happen and that's that's kind of this this chase unfolding um and definitely yeah i i think this is one that's this is one that will kind of stand out to me down the line it's not like it doesn't have the crazy over the topness of the italy sequence but i think it has something maybe a little bit more special in in one yeah. sense yeah maybe it's just because it's not so uh i don't know over elaborate it's very simple yeah that it's just kind of works so well but yeah this is definitely a highlight for sure and um yeah so uh despite bond's best efforts uh madeline and matilda are kidnapped by safin and uh, Bond teams up with uh, Nomi 007 to head to his island, which is off the coast. I believe they mentioned it's somewhere in between Russia and Japan. He has kind of got this own little island to himself. Yes, it's a disputed yeah. island there, which there are disputed territories between. I think Japan and Russia have been technically at war for like 100 years over some like uninhabited islands uh, there. Yeah. Though the island itself is actually, the, I think it's the Faroe Islands. It's like in an autonomous uh faroe islands are like an autonomous danish uh group mm -hmm. like you know they're they they answer to denmark but don't answer to them i'm not entirely sure i just know they have their own football team that's really the only way i would ever know about the faroe islands because they were one of the only teams that ireland could like semi-consistently beat in soccer because they were an even tinier nation um so yeah they took the faroe islands i believe and just cgi'd in a base because <laughs> that's what you gotta do because there is there are no bases there there's no massive chemical right. plant so they had they had to do that you know it's i gotta say this is i feel like it's been a while since we've had a really good villain lair yeah. um especially considering all the the craig films um uh, like like specter was just kind of a hotel in the desert and uh like silva had just kind of like this abandoned island as well which was kind of just outfitted with a bunch of um, like hard drives and and servers for his computer schemes. But uh, yeah, this is like great. There's like what looks to be like stolen artwork everywhere, which I think is a reference to Dr. No, or I, I know is a reference to yeah. Dr. No. It's very ornate and elaborate. There's giant skylights. Uh, there's people working in this like deadly pool factory with which is illuminated with these cool stand-up lights and uh yeah bond and uh nomi basically storm the tower they're both outfitted in these like tactical sweaters and have machine guns and uh this is a pretty thrilling sequence as well that kind of takes us into the end of the film yeah this this is a good one um because you know we're used to the storm the base bond sequence but normally when when they get to that point it's like you know helicopters and a bunch of guys coming in with machine guns this is like a Again, almost like Metal Gear Solid, uh, kind of a tactical insertion. Yeah. Just two people on this like little plane come submarine insertion unit. Just two people riding it and just quietly gets them in. Um, and yeah, from this, they're just basically supposed to ascertain what's happening and uh, try and rescue who they need to rescue and figure out what's happening. And of course, things spiral out of control once they realize what they're actually dealing with, which is essentially that Safin is uh, mass producing the virus or the the poisons or mm -hmm. whatever that are this is not entirely clear I assume it must be mass produ like uh, Heric Project Heracles is a nanobot thing but there must be they deliver a virus and he's mass producing the virus or the poison that's used because people when they die get like warts and stuff so it's not like nanobots are just tearing them up uh, they must be delivering some kind of a chemical agent I guess 
but it not that it really matters i'm just i'm just curious i, I wasn't 100 yeah. percent sure because he because as safin mentions he has like a poison garden or his father had a poison garden where he would cultivate strange and, and imaginative poisons plants and things that you could be used and he basically has modernized this and extrapolated from that to create a, a mass factory for whatever it is that project heracles delivers with the concept mm-hmm. that he can based on his own whims i guess eradicate entire sections of the population based on their dna um so so that's essentially once they realize that's what's going on there they realize that uh, maybe uh, you know a quiet insertion mission won't be enough they need to shut this place down and destroy it yeah so there's a yeah there's these bombers that are you um uk bombers bomber ships stealth ships i don't know they're offshore basically ready to basically end everything on this island you know at the drop of a hat um so but yeah but first bond and Naomi have to go in they have to secure the scientist um which i'm not quite sure why they don't just kill him on sight he's been just such a pain he does like, seem to yeah she, he keeps surviving and being left alone for some reason like she even takes him and is like he's accompanying her while she's shooting other guys before she just kind of unceremoniously drops him into the like the pool of acid chemicals this is after he after he mentions that for based on the the dna he's like he has all the genetic signatures of the western africa diaspora and i could uh mm-hmm. you know theoretically you know he's like just uh, and it's funny because you never quite get the you know like like the mad scientists of so many bond films and stuff you're never quite sure what's a threat or just him extrapolating his field of interest that he just kind of right. happens to mention to her that's like you know theoretically i could wipe out you know all black people effectively with uh you know with this virus we like isn't that interesting you know you're not sure is it a threat or you know it's clearly a threat it's a, a horrific sentiment he's like hinting at genocide but you know it's also you're not quite sure he's just babbling because he's just this is what he's devoted his life to but anyway she just takes that as an excuse to kick him into a big pool of poisoned water uh, and you know we right. don't miss him too much after that so oh well yeah so yeah he's uh he's toast and uh safin has uh matilde at gunpoint and uh bond comes they have a little face-to-face where he's basically proclaiming he's gonna change the world and bond is saying like you're a fool for trying to play god uh he f- fake begs for mercy from safin but he quick draws and kills all the guys in the room but Safin escapes with Matilde through a little hidden elevator compartment that he has. Um, and then meanwhile, uh, Ma- Madeline, she's like really proven to be resourceful herself. Like she's, you know, held in prisoner in another room, but she gets out on her own and locks a guy in there. Uh, I-, I think we should say like this is, you know, we've obviously had Sylvia Trench has been a return Bond girl before, but uh, no Bond girl has come back to a film to the extent that Madeline has and uh, while I thought she was good in Spectre, I think she's really outstanding in this film. And I think the relationship with her and Bond is a lot more credible than the one that Spectre leaves them with. But um, yeah, yeah, she's, yeah, she's great as well. She's interesting. And, and an interesting kind of a fold on this character is that she is a pretty traumatic childhood as laid out in the opening sequence of this with Safin coming to, to murder his her entire family and only finding part of it. But... Obviously, you know, Hmm. previous films have hinted that her father, Mr. White, was not, you know, a tremendously great role model. But that childhood, if nothing else, has given her a resilience and an instinct that if she needs to take action to preserve herself, she will. 
and in the previous in the SUV chase uh, through the forest in uh, several locations she gunned down people you know she's she's protective mother in this sequence but also just you know she she does what she needs to do so um it's kind of like it's interesting because i guess that allies back to vesper a little bit as well as someone who kind of is reserved and we don't know exactly what vesper's childhood is but casino royale and that fantastic original dialogue between uh, Vesper and Bond where they're trying to feel each other out and basically show off how good they are at profiling people and basically revealing they're both kind of smarmy arseholes that um you know they kind of this hint that they're both orphans and they've both kind of you know come to uh you know kind of uh look after themselves they've learned to look after yeah. themselves and and this kind of confirms that Madeline is sort of caught from the same cloth there there is a logic and a trajectory to her and Bond kind of finding solace in each other so yeah, it, it all kind of works out quite well, and like you say, other than Sylvia two times Trench, uh, the only returning, returning Bond girl, uh, she's really a character in this one. She has a lot of screen time and a lot to do. So kind mm-hmm. of, kind of an interesting, another kind of first, really, uh, for the franchise. Yeah, yeah, she's great, and uh, yeah, we get a lot of uh, a lot of great action in the sequence. Um, uh, Nomi helps uh, Matilde and Madeline escape. Um, it's funny, Safin just kind of lets Matilde go after she just clearly just doesn't want to be with him, and he's like, all right, fine, go, you're off to your own devices. <laughs> um, she's trying to find her teddy bear, which is in French known as the doo-doo, um, and uh, she helps, she escapes with the help of uh, Nobi. Bond catches up to them and regroups with them. I love the moment where Bond kind of introduces Madeline and Matilde to Nomi, and he, he like mouths the word, they're my family. <laughs> he just kind of, just like the realization, like, oh, that's what I'm dealing with here. Um, but uh, yeah, they they get safely off, and Bond has some unfinished business. He's got to basically open the shutters to the base so that the missiles can decimate it with the airstrike. Uh, we get a great little moment where Bond basically does another in-context gun barrel. I don't know if you noticed that, where he kind of he walks from right to left and turns and swiftly shoots at a guy down a circular hallway. Oh, you know, you're right. Yes, I hadn't thought about that shot. Because I thought that was, a, you know, the, the shot is... There's some, it, throughout this whole sequence, there are several sequences trying to do a kill count in this movie, particularly with the resources yeah. available. It's tricky, <laughs> but there's there several sequences where he shoots off screen. And you're not quite sure, is he clearing an area or is there someone there? You're never quite sure, but he does. that's one of them. But, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. You're right. He's he's recreating the gun barrel, but in place. I think it's safe to say that when he, like, pops out of a corner and just shoots and then stops, I think that's at least one kill, uh, I think you could estimate. But, um, yeah, as far as, like, just kind of simple but sturdy action, there's this great little, like, escalator or not uh, like a staircase ascension where it's all is is like shot in one long unbroken take of just bond going up and taking out guy after guy and it's there's nothing really flashy about it but it's just kind of really really robust and energetic and i think you know it's a cool little capper to this sequence that bond is just this unstoppable beast which is great yeah yeah great that that's a really strong sequence and like you say yeah just kind of like it gets harder and harder as he ascends as things go he's starting to like shoot a guy and drop behind uses a human shield to shoot the next guy and then advancing to his body as a human shield it's kind of like just a very grim determination to it and this is of course bond operating on the on his world saving mode he's got to do this or else 
it's all for nothing. So, you know, yeah. it's it's kind of a, yeah, a really solid action set piece. And I think it is really kind of, um, from, from the Italy sequence, uh, maybe, and Cuba a little bit, like everything beyond those is very much kind of like, kind of a low-key functional kind of an action sequence it's much more in the um kind of you know i i'm trying to think like i guess like the raid or something somewhat those aren't low-key in terms of like crazy stunts and physicality but there's a very brutish kind of directness to them which is translated mm -hmm. into uh you know uh john wick and stuff as well where what there's a stylization and it's very difficult to physically do what they're doing it's kind of not dressed up as like they're not doing like in hong kong movies like back in the 80s when they do a huge stunt they like replay it from five different camera angles and be like can you believe someone did this you know it's not that kind of a thing it's it's much more like you know kind of uh the process step by step kind of uh you know this is how you kill five people sort of a thing which you know is yeah. it's very it's very much the f kind of the flavor of action right now, but it's also not the worst thing that it is because I think it has brought uh, kind of stuntmen more to the fore. It's a very demanding, rigorous kind of a style, and this is something Hong Kong had been doing for a long, long time. I think really Thailand, uh, I'm thinking you know like uh, Ong Bak and so on, which did you know did a lot of the mm -hmm. replay nonsense, uh, which was fun when they did it. But I kind of like the, we're wanting up one upping it again. Like Tony Jaa, the protect protector, Tom Young Goon had a, a great like single take action sequence as well. That was really kind of like epoch defining. I think of of like two thousands action. So it's kind of all in that flavor. I think Hollywood at certain point when these films were coming out were kind of like uh, we need to do something because we just look like garbage next to this. Uh, and I think they've they've been been getting there with John Wick and so on you know uh, atomic blonde i didn't think was a good movie but uh you know worked in that mode yeah. and now there seems like there's 800 of them on netflix is like what is it, like something like something milkshake and there's uh another oh, yeah. one that's gunpowder milkshake gunpowder milkshake and there's another one with mary <laughs> elizabeth winstead that came out recently as well like it seems like they're just proliferating and it sounds like anna de armas is gonna get one soon too i mean there's also uh with uh, I think her name is Maggie Q. Just came out with one this year called The Protege, that's which right. is directed by Martin Campbell, Casino Royale director. Yeah, that's so right. That's on my de list. Definitely growing. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's hey, why not? You know, and it also reminds me of stuff like, um, and particularly the women-led element, which Hollywood is like, we invented mm -hmm. this because that's what Hollywood does when it's twenty years behind. It maybe more than twenty years behind at this point, but kind of goes back like films like The Villainess from South Korea was also where. Uh, not not oh, yeah. very action heavy, but when it went to action, went for these extremely intricate uh, one presented as one take. They couldn't be done in one take. There's clever editing within them, but really like bombastic action with women at the center of it. So yeah, the the stakes have been raised, and this feels very much, you know, this very comfortably plays in with it. And of course, Daniel Craig is just a very good physical Bond. Like this is not like Roger Moore. Would this would make no sense with Roger Moore, uh, but with with Craig, oh, no. God makes no. sense. You know, like honestly, Roger Moore or Pierce Brosnan, you know, like Brosnan would make no sense in this kind of physical, hands-on kind of thing. Like, and Brosnan is like you know an arch killer right. in his own season, but he's kind of like you know machine gun and a cocktail kind of guy. So um, yeah, it, it it all makes sense. Essentially, it's all a you know a good run of things.
yeah yeah it's it's great um <laughs> and yeah i knew yeah it's uh, that's the other thing too with everybody can have their favorite bond film everyone can have their favorite bond i love them all because they all have different strengths and you can in based on your moon you can really just kind of enjoy whichever one you're in in the want to put on whatever you're in the in the flavor for but there is, there's, um, there's a genuine yeah. variety there and like i think for a long yeah. time roger moore was the punch bag you know the kind of like oh roger moore stupid era i think frankly honestly i i do i think we'd all the world would be a poor place without the roger moore movies they're mm-hmm. pretty goddamn fun <laughs> so yeah you know no, why, why complain about them i mean okay uh, the man with the golden guns might be the worst bond movie i've ever seen but of the official yeah. line uh, but, you know, the, the other ones, they're pretty good, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, they can't all be winners, but I think there's still plenty of good stuff to enjoy. But, um, yeah. So, swinging things back to uh, No Time to Die, uh, Bond has a final encounter with Primo, the Cyclops henchman. He has a He's outfitted with an electromagnetic watch from Q, which he uses to basically blow up the eye while it's in his head. Uh, we get a good final Bond quip where he, he calls Q on his comm and he says, I showed this guy your watch. It really blew his mind. Uh, he kind of laughs to himself about that. Um, but then we have uh, another encounter with Safin who actually shoots Bond and has him like basically dead to rights. Um, Bond quickly recovers and breaks his wrist, which is great. Uh, but in the process, Safin stabs Bond with this little um little trinket that he has which he i think he calls insurance earlier on it's revealed that it has the dna um targeting of both madeline and matilde so even if bond makes it out of the base alive uh he will kill them both if he ever gets close to them again uh and there's this kind of weary sense of acceptance that bond goes through as he guns down Safin and then he heads off to the uh to the control room to open up the shutters on the base yeah, there's a real, there's a real, like, there's no quip when he kills Safin. He just puts three rounds in him and walks off. Like, it's, it's, there, there's something really, I've, yeah. we've not seen this before, this idea of Bond. Like, the closest we've come, I guess, really, is, is Lazenby in the car cradling his dead wife. Uh, like, a real, the world just kind of came down around him while he's in the middle of saving the world. Like, the world ended preemptively for him but he's still got a job to do and it's yeah it's a really yeah it's it's pretty solid um kind of a setup yeah then uh then we get to the moment um bond opens the, sh- the shutters of the doors and the airstrikes are incoming but he's too far in and too wounded and he realizes this is uh it's his time and then i as an audience member realize oh my god they're going to kill james bond and he gets on one last call with Matilde or Madeline, and he, you know, he says, "I'm not going to make it." And uh, they have just this brief moment together to hear each other's voices. She reveals that uh, Matilde has his eyes. He says, "I know," which are the last words that James Bond speaks. And then the airstrike comes down and obliterates him. And for the first time ever, James Bond dies in a movie. And uh and then we're we're left to uh process that uh what are your what jack right they, yeah they did it they did, they did it. it oh god damn I, it, yeah no, i know this this is i'm I talking earlier kind of hinting towards it you know th- this is something that comes with the heft of a multi-film arc 
you know, they lean into what are the big beats for Bond, and it's kind of like tragic love and death. And, you know, they, they lean into both of them in this, and it, it pays off. I think it's a really strong yeah. ending. It Like I say, it feels like Bond has realized his world, you know, it's over for him. There's, you know, the things he actually really cares about, he can't actually contribute to anymore. So he's got to focus on saving the rest of the world so that other people can live on. There's actually a kind of a, an interesting, like, because Bond, for all of his uh, saving the world credentials throughout the movies, uh, do, doesn't exactly talk a lot about like his love for humanity or, or anything or any other institutions. He's very much like a hedonistic character. He basically mm -hmm. he's has sex with women, he drinks booze, and and he saves the world. But it's not like there's there's not really an altruistic element to it. So this is sort of a bond who I guess has learned a humility, who's kind of realized mm -hmm. this is where things come to a close for him. It's a narrative beat that really is we've never seen in a Bond film before, and like I say, it comes with the weight of the preceding the the preceding films and everything that's built from there. Um, as I say earlier, I'm I'm concerned if we continue with these multi-film plot arcs, yeah. how do we reinvent these? Because frankly, the tragic love and death plot arcs, if you start, you know, those are kind of like the big obvious beats that I think Bond can carry. You would have to significantly yeah. rejig the character to really go in a lot of other directions. And, you know, Bond and most blockbusters work in very broad strokes. They're about saving the world from madmen, you know, uh, not very, you know, realistic stuff. Uh, so I just worry, while it's good here, I'm hoping they don't take the lesson of like, fuck, we could just do this every 10 years now or 15 years but um, it's it's a really, yeah, it's a really kind of bittersweet ending and it comes right in the back as they play out with We Have All the Time in the World, which Bond yeah. does not anymore. It's actually yeah. kind of makes it kind of a, a, an arc of tragedy to it that's surprisingly affecting within within the context of a rough and tumble globe spanning action film. Yeah, the just the, the final moments of uh, Madeline and Mathilde driving off into their own they drive off into like their own little gun barrel it's a circular another circular tunnel and she says i'm going to tell you about a man named bond james bond and louis armstrong's immortal song takes us out and thus ends the daniel craig era of bond films so here's an idea okay so yeah. okay. madeline and matilde lone wolf and cob spinoff you know, it's funny that Barbara Broccoli said the next Bond is going to be a, a girl. And, uh, you know, why not? I'll I'll watch Matilde Bond as a killer. It'll be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, but, yeah, if so, I mean, it, where to go from here? Obviously, it's part of making it a connected universe. Is maybe not the wisest move. Because, honestly, I don't think they can top this um, as far as right, yeah, having yeah. another Bond arc. So I think A just embrace the I I don't I'm I'm not opposed to what the Craig era did, but I don't think they can do it again. I think everything needs they need to kind of wipe the slate clean. Everyone has got to be fresh when they recast. Um, so in and just kind of embrace the the light episodic nature of it. And if we get if the next Bond is the next Roger Moore, hey, you know maybe I'll have some more good times in the in the cinema. But yeah, for now I I think. Uh, yeah, I think this is this stands as just one of the strongest endings to any Bond uh, that we've seen, and you know, there's there could be a faction on the internet that is upset that a Bond becomes a father and then also is killed, and they're thinking my hero would never do that. 
Well, I don't know how I would feel if I saw this 10 years ago, but as a man who is uh, soon to be a father himself, I felt that this uh, this ending was completely earned. And uh, yeah, it's very bittersweet, like you said, and I, I could not think of a better way to conclude uh, the Craig era of films. It's 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 basically it's perfect in my in my opinion. Yeah, it, um, it works. Yeah. I mean, it logically it's it works. And it, I had the kind of same reaction sitting there. It's like. I think he's gonna die. <laughs> that's yeah. that's never happened before. Like usually he's like, oh, you know, there's some button with the like, oh, we've got an extra escape ship or whatever. And it's like that's yeah. I think he's actually just gonna die now. And that, that kind of realization that that makes good sense. It's you know, it's sort yeah. of a logical progression of things. So yeah, I, I do. It will be interesting to see what they do next. And and you say like Barbara Broccoli saying, you know. The next Bond should be female. I'm not sure. I particular. I you know the 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 politics of gender swapping and stuff. I think is always you know troublesome. And mm-hmm. um, Bond is somewhat more resilient to that because they can reconfigure everything. But at the same yeah. time, they also in, uh, at the end of the credit say James Bond will return. So unless she's called James, I'm not quite sure what they're going to be doing with that. That's that's true yeah we get those <laughs> those four famous words at the end of all the credits james bond will return and uh i think even daniel craig kind of said it best in an interview recently saying like when somebody asked should the next bond be a woman or someone he says why why make that them a woman when we can just make better roles for women everywhere else yeah. you know why why limit them to bond it's it's uh it's it's a very wise move and yeah, I think I think the like you said with all these other action films that are oriented around different heroes, I think I think now the possibilities are endless for anyone anywhere and I think uh, Bond kind of helped open a world to that and it's just another reason to celebrate this uh this wonderful franchise like we've been doing for so many and, years. And as it's, much as uh, people have been complaining for years about like Bond and, you know, misogyny and hopping in bed with different women in every movie and whatever, like honestly is that worse than like the Marvel movies where everyone is just the most sexless, robotic, just chiseled chin and nothing else? Like no urges, no human impulses whatsoever. Frankly, we can do better than the classic Bond, you know, like, oh, that's a nice lady. I think I'll have sex with her and then leave kind of thing. Sure, that's not brilliant. I think they've definitely they've been working on that quite successfully with the, the, the latter era of movies. But at the same time, honestly, you know, uh, the, yeah. the, the sex element in Bond at this point almost seems like a welcome respite from an utterly sexless uh mainstream movie existence you know no one like it's just not happening anywhere else they've kind of eradicated like sex is on television now uh that's like literally that's what's happened it's like sex is on television and movies are now all pg-13 kind of like people sometimes share knowing glances like i'd like to hang out with you and that's about as passionate as they get um mm-hmm. that kind of sucks too honestly it's not particularly uh thrilling so you know i think we could be really good friends it's like i don't you know we could probably do a little more than that so yeah mm-hmm. and it will be it will be interesting to see what happens but i i agree with broadly like a female james bond is nowhere near as daring as people might seem to think it is i think that you know it really comes from creating 
and giving female characters their own things to do. I mean, like, oh, it's the Ghostbusters, but they're all women. It's kind of like, yeah, but it's still the <laughs> Ghostbusters, you know, like, what, what about something different completely? How about, you know, like, how about letting some women come up with their own franchise ideas, their own teams, their own characters, rather than going, hiring a woman and telling her to make well-known character James Bond more like a woman now, uh, you yeah. know. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I think, you know, I, they, they've done pretty well, I think, with uh, Vesper Lind and Madeline Swan as kind of interesting women. Not, I mean, we can argue none of the Bond movies, uh, Bond generally, are not known for, like, their really intricate, you know, psychologically, mm -hmm. in you know, brilliantly drawn out people. They work in broad strokes, but, like, Vesper Lind and Madeline Swan were proper foils to Bond in terms of incomplete people struggling with with problems of their own. And then Anna de Armas in this is just basically just pretty much given her own scene to just rock the world and then just kind of shake hands with Bond and head away because like they're you know they're they're you know they're they're working together. They're uh, what you say equals on the field you know and bond yeah. kind of tells her like wow you're you're really good at this and she's like yes thank you you're good too and they sort of like part ways because that's what they've done their job and um, there's plenty of ways to go with this i don't think a female james bond is going to happen i mean they had one in this they had a female 007 you can go in a lot mm -hmm. of ways but you know i i think the the this franchise probably you know, I think if they do that, it's going to, first of all, it's going to make a lot of very vocal, stupid people on the internet just be vocal and stupid, which is no fun for anyone. Um, but yeah. then it's also, it's going to run the risk of uh, just turning into kind of a t token, tokenism, sort of mm -hmm. short-sighted kind of like uh, pandering stuff. Uh, so I kind of hope they don't quite go that way. But then again, maybe they'll come up with something really interesting. I don't know. It's... It's difficult because, you know, as we imagine what Bond will do going forward, you know, there's never been a really huge transformation from Bond to Bond. Like, even Roger Moore in Live, or Let, Live and Let Die uh, was not like, he didn't just start off as, like, goofy old Roger Moore. It was, yeah. uh, you know, it, it was it was a gentle, more gentle transition. Um, you know, right. so, so I, I don't know what what's next in store, and it seems like mainstream cinema currently is very much into seriousness of various stripes so and i think bond you know could do with maybe a little you know the next maybe they could do a little bit more levity um but it'll, it'll be interesting i i agree with you though i don't think they can do this again and i hope they don't try you know to go like his this he's like daniel craig but he's even more brooding and it's like that's gonna mm -hmm. just <laughs> that'll get real tiresome quick but uh, I don't know, it'll probably take at least five years before we find out, but I'm sure there'll be lots and lots of... There. I'm sure they're already searching for the next one. Um, yeah. Is there anyone you'd actually care to see as a Bond? Like, have you got any thoughts on who you think would be interesting? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of... I mean, first of all, let me... I'll comment on a lot of, like, popular choices people throw out. Like, you know, I think Idris Elba would have been great... 15 years ago like if, instead of craig we had idris that would have been fantastic he's he's a bit too old now and he's even said himself he's not interested but like i don't think any established name like uh 
Tom Hardy or uh, Michael Fassbender would be good. I think Henry Cavill's too wooden. His name is thrown around. He's also all all these guys are already attached to these large franchises. Sure. Um, personal personally, a good. I don't. I don't know if he's kind of beyond the 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 point of going into it now. But like, if we got like a post guest Dan Stevens in as the next Bond, I think he would have been fantastic. Mm. Uh, he's young. He's deadly he's british i you know he he ticks a lot of boxes but um as far as the next bond goes honestly i think it might just have to be some english guy who's not as established uh, as you know as all these other names are um so yeah i don't know do you have any any thoughts as yeah to who? No, i i don't know i mean uh, casting is never i i'm like i have actor blindness to some degree i'm kind of like, i'm like the kubrick or hitchcock i'm like they're just chess pieces to be moved around um but you know, not yeah. not fully. But like when they bring them out, uh, you know, it makes sense to me. But yeah, I I think certainly, um, it feels like Bond probably it, it, they should go younger. Like the, the, even yeah. the Craig era was peculiar in that the whole thing was like he's just starting out, and then the rest of the films were about him being over the hill. And <laughs> wait, right. wait, wait, there was no middle ground. Like when was he a functioning agent? Uh, we missed that. Yeah. There was, should have been a film between Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, and there couldn't be because that literally started one film after the next there were like immediate uh, continuity so who knows but yeah i i think they 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 need to go young and of course the problem with that is then who's established for it it's like yeah i guess they get tom holland in or whatever his name is little tiny spider-man guy get the fuck out of my face (laughs) it's not gonna happen i'm i do not think that would work i think it would be extremely funny uh but it might not it would be funny until i had to sit through the movie uh, I don't think that would yeah. be so great. Um, yeah, you you just wait. I mean, this this may be our last episode, so to speak. But we're actually just gonna put this in into dry storage, and we're gonna we're gonna unsheathe for your ears only when we have our next bond. So, well, sure, you, you laugh now, but when uh, when you know when twenty five year old Tom Hardy is uh, <laughs> is is, is I, I mean, come on, that guy's never had sex. Um, but yeah, we should we're we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's uh. For the last time, let's let's run the numbers, shall we, Jack? Absolutely. As we got, we, I've got a lot of numbers here. You've you've had, yeah, you had the insurmountable task of tallying every uh, death in this film, and uh, I'm I'm quite interested to hear your results. Absolutely. Yeah, this has been a chore. Um, disclaimer up front on this, uh, because obviously this is still in theaters as we record. I didn't try and keep a death count while I was watching in theater. That would just be dizzying and confusing. So I had to rely on a cam rip that I downloaded and it looks like absolute ass and it's very dark and it doesn't have the entire image on the screen at any time. And if you pause it anywhere, it's just a blurry mess. So uh, it, I'm not going to claim that the my counts here are absolutely definitive. They never are because you're always like, I kind of like, oh, I don't know if he killed that guy. He did kill that guy. You know, people can argue about this, but I, I think I've kept a general level of consistency. But um. This is, uh, people may remember, the highest body count for a Bond in any film prior to this was Goldeneye with 38 killed. And I think it's no surprise to anyone who's seen No Time to Die that Daniel Craig smashes that in this movie. He kills an unprecedented 53 people in this movie by my count. And I'll, you know, I'm, I, I like I say, I don't know about, uh, 
you know, it may climb higher. He killed at least 53 people. When I have a proper quality copy of this, I might go back and look through it and just see if there's any I missed. Because uh, I, I did make some calls. Like, for example, in Italy, I only counted four. I think he blows up one car pretty good and there's going to be at least two people in that car. Uh, when he's yeah. doing his donuts with the Gatling gun, I gave him two there. There were two guys who clearly didn't get behind cover based on the terrible quality copy i watched but i think everyone else is behind the cars and i think he really just did that to disable the cars narratively because he then just drives off to a train station to put madeline on a train which was a jest primarily he just got rid of their cars he wasn't out to kill everyone um but anyhow yeah uh you know yeah he he kills uh four people in italy i think he kills 10 people in cuba very difficult it's very dark uh mm-hmm. kills seven people in norway um and then, and then, I mean, where we where the numbers kick in the the base sequence. Uh, Goldeneye, the previous record holder, he killed thirty eight people. James Bond in the entire movie, he kills thirty two people alone, storming the base in that whole sequence. So completely new game. Uh, I so so that gives um we get a lot of totals. That means right twenty five Bond films. Um, and oh, Millie, we're including uh, uh what am I? What's the name of it? Uh, the Never Say Never Again, I believe, is is including this too. So James Bond has killed four hundred and fifty three people uh, to date. Yeah. Which is pretty good. Nice. That's that's quite a lot of people that uh, just well the government sanctioned it all. Uh, I yeah, also, if you got a license to do so, do it, man. That's it. Absolutely, taking full advantage. I have worked out based on this. This means that Craig in total has killed one hundred and forty three people. So he has the highest body count. The person behind him for that is Pierce Brosnan with 118 people. But on average, Pierce Brosnan made only four Bond movies. Craig made five. Pierce Brosnan is still the deadliest Bond on average. Craig, with an entire other film, though, was only five people away from being the deadliest on average as well. And honestly, when I rewatch that, maybe I'll find those five guys. I don't know. So, uh, yeah, so, so, God, that's just an enormous amount of killing. Um, I'm going to run through the averages on this, because since we have everything clued up, let's let's just do this. Uh, Sean Connery killed 74 people. Uh, 70 nice. in the Eon franchise, 74 including Never Say Never Again, the unofficial yes. film. So that means he is killed in the Eon franchise. He has averaged 11.67 kills per movie. Uh, and in all movies, he has killed 10.57 people per movie. So that's pretty good. Uh, Lazenby had one movie, he killed six people. So that that's Lazenby. He was, he was a lover, not a fighter. Then we have Roger Moore. Roger Moore had seven films, just like uh, Connery total, and he killed 12.29 people, so a little higher than Connery. He's he's a little bit more dangerous. Dalton, 26 people killed in two movies, 13 kills per movie. Beats Moore. Uh, Dalton was, he was a a fighter, not a lover. (laughs) So it's the flip of of that. He he also... Like kind of like Craig, just to jump in, he made his kills count. Like, if, oh, yeah. if Dalton killed you, you you better know that you deserved it. I mean, that pressure chamber kill is absolutely emblazoned on my young memory. It's one of the the coolest uh-huh. kills in cinema, as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, Dalton all day for me. Uh, Brosnan four films, he killed 118 people, so 29.5 people killed per movie. So we're already going to like over double 
uh, the previous, by the, the Brosnan era, they were just killing people everywhere. Uh, the full proliferation of the, the 90s PG-13 ideal. Craig has killed 143 people in five movies. That's 28.6. So just Brosnan at 29.5, Craig 28.6. So maybe he'll get it. Who knows? We'll, we'll find out. Uh, so right then we, we've also been running the numbers, of course, on, on Bond's uh, love conquests. Which honestly was, oh, a, yes. w- was a funnier thing to do in the earlier days than in the newer ones, really. You know, we're charting the age differences. And it's no surprise to anyone, Roger Moore uh, and Carol Bouquet, still 30 years age difference between them and For Your Eyes Only. No one is touching that record. That will never be touched again. No way in hell. Uh, in this movie, Bond only has uh, beds one woman, and it's the same woman he bedded in the last film. Uh, Leo Sado, Madeline Swan. So, yeah. Not, so, honestly, this has only happened once before with uh, Sylvia Trench, as we mentioned. It's the only time we've had a woman carry through. Um, so, in total, and this is kind of the inverse, while Bond kills more and more people as the era advances, he sleeps with less and less women. So uh, Connery and Moore are actually equal in total. Mm. They they both have slept with 19 different women. I didn't count Sylvia Trench twice for Connery. Just 19 women. We're not counting the amount of times Bond has sex. We don't know. When they fade to black, he could get like three in a oh, row. Yeah. We have no idea. Uh, you know, Q might have pills he can take to help with that. It's entirely <laughs> possible. So Connery is... Uh, he. In the Eon era, he has sex with 2.5 women per movie. That goes up to 2.71 in Never Say Never Again, because I had forgotten this. The oldest, when Connery is at his oldest in that movie, he he has uh, four women in that movie. Because at that point, just suspend your disbelief. Let's go for it. I swear to God, he has sex with almost more people than he kills in that movie, which is a surprising flip of things. Lazenby is really... Yeah, Lazenby is really strong showing because uh, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, three women, but one movie. So three per movie actually puts him ahead of Connery and Moore, technically. But since it's only one movie, I don't think it counts. Although he did marry one of them as well. Uh, and then that brings us, of course, famously to the uh, Timothy Dalton era and AIDS, which put a damper on the whole thing. <laughs> so they tried to stop that. So they put a damper on it and Dalton had sex with four women across two movies. So two women per movie. That's that's James Bond playing it safe, ladies and gentlemen. That's the most they could do. Brosnan, a uh, total of 10 women across, what, four movies. So 2.5 women per movie, which actually equals Connery in the official Eon franchise. So that's kind of surprising in the 90s. I would have thought it would be lower, but it isn't. Uh, they, they kind of pulled it back up again. And then Craig's uh, not not really into this at all. He's just too committed to the women he meets, uh, even though they keep dying. So uh, Craig, six women total. Obviously Spectre and, and uh, No Time to Die, Madeline Swan is in both of those. That brings us to 1.2 women per movie. So okay. all right. that's the lowest of any of the Bonds, you know? So... Yeah. At this point, to be fair, the sexual politics of the Bond movie, like I say, th- as we moved into the 80s, this whole it's thing... Important, it's important to track the you know the growth and the progression of the series. It's, it's true. That's it why is, we do what we do. It's kind of an interesting thing, because it's sort of like the, the, the Moore era was really where it got... The Moore era and Sean Connery's uh, Never Say Never Again was kind of like the, the bloatiest kind of like, 
why is this happening every time sex occurred kind of period of the franchise and then they kind of like roped it back in a little bit with like frankly at least women might want to have sex with timothy dalton whereas by the time we got to like live and let die or sorry a view to a kill with roger moore uh, it's kind of like this seems like i mean he's very charismatic he's got a little twinkle in his eye but i don't think the women are going to be falling for roger moore so you know it, it all works out here uh so so those are our numbers and that's a lot of numbers to throw at people but you can you can go back i'll probably post them all on twitter eventually too um yeah and it'll be interesting, as I say, to revisit later on with a better quality copy of this movie and see if perhaps Daniel Craig can surpass Brosnan, both for highest body count, he's already done that, but also as the deadliest Bond per movie. And who knows, maybe in 20 years' time, we'll have reached a point where Bond will be killing 400 people per movie based on inflation. It's possible. Who knows? It is very much so, yes. It's it's um, entirely possible. But um, yeah, the, the box office uh, on this, I don't know how complete, it's still in theaters, but hopefully this is doing yeah. well. So yeah, like uh, like you said, you may not have a definitive answer on the kills. I have a, a progress report, I guess you could say, on the box office totals, because at the time of this recording and release, Bond or No Time to Die will still be out in theaters. So if you uh, enjoyed the podcast and you want to go see it again, you will help these numbers. But uh, yeah, as of now, uh, the film has earned $133 million in the U.S. alone. It's earned an additional $473 million uh, overseas, which uh, brings it to a total of $606 million worldwide. Uh, No need to adjust for inflation for that because those are today's dollars. Um, I don't have the inflation-adjusted totals for the franchise, but if you just take these numbers, uh, No Time to Die is currently the third highest grossing Bond film in the series, uh, behind Spectre as number two and Skyfall as number one. So, uh, yeah, actually, all, all of Craig's uh, films are the top five uh, Bond films, if you don't adjust for inflation, though. I think uh, Thunder Malls might still have this one beat. Sure. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're in a strange time. This was delayed uh, at least four or five times, as far as I know. And uh, even with the pandemic, I'm glad that this film uh, got to earn some money back. I am very glad they didn't dump it on streaming. I know Netflix or oh, others man. put in put it in an offer. I'm very glad they they politely declined. This this does this. I I kind of think like often to me because it's where the way I grew up with them that like Bond movies play really well on television. But I gotta admit this one really does work on the big screen. I mean, they all work on it, but it's kind of like nice when you're watching, you know, Bond movies, you just flick on the TV and there it is. It's kind of how I'm used to interacting with them. But this looks really nice on a big screen. I got to admit. Absolutely. Well, I think, uh, I think that that brings us to the end. Uh, Is there any other final thoughts you had on this uh, series or uh, the film or anything? No, this this has been, honestly, I had been meaning to watch all of the Bond movies. I'd seen most of them before, but there was chunks, you know, a few I just never got around to. So this turned out to be a pretty worthwhile project. And I guess now I'm just free to start flipping back and looking at all of them again and kind of mixing and matching. So that, that will be fun. But this is definitely... A franchise I have a kind of a soft spot for. As if you listen yeah. through this, is definitely it's got its problems. I've got you know points of contention, but like you say, I mean this this really, it's it's a pretty well defined franchise in terms of it brings a lot to the table. There's a distinctiveness to the films that I think honestly is lacking in a lot of other right now certainly blockbusters that are 
much more homogenous and even even bond films within the same era seem to have you know a little bit more differential between them some lean a little more serious a little more kind of like uh, melodramatic mm-hmm. or comedic so and then of course they just blow up real stuff which honestly you know i know global warming is coming but no just you know that the, the whatever whatever carbon emissions you get from like blowing up cars just keep doing it for movies you gotta it's worth it guys yeah. And just get kids go out there and spill some Coca Cola on the streets, and you'll never fall down. That's it. That's I can do it. You can do it too. That's it. I, this is but, my new my new trick. I'm gonna go test that out later. <laughs> just imagining you with just a two liter bottle of Pepsi or something, just <laughs> dumping it, <laughs> crashing my my drive, my mid sedan. sedan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Jack, I got to say, I've, I've had a real blast uh, talking these films with you. And if, if I had one purpose in life, which was to get one p- person to watch all the Bond films with me, I'm glad that you, uh, I could sucker you into it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm glad that we uh, took this journey. It's been, been, a lot of, been a lot of good times. I'm happy that all the OV guys who've guested, you know, Sean, Adam, Steve, you guys have all played your parts and wonderful special guests also go out to uh, Christy and alistair and oh gosh i'm this is all just i did not have a speech prepared but this is all just kind of coming to me at the top of my head but uh you know we want to thank everybody for your listenership through all these years uh if we've encouraged you to watch bond films because of this podcast you know i i, I want to thank you as well and uh yeah just uh just go out there have fun celebrate the franchise and uh jack uh any uh you want to leave your social media should you wish uh, to have the people reach out to you where can they reach you oh absolutely yeah so so i'm on twitter you can reach me at real jack eason that's real j-a-c-k-e-a-s-o-n so yeah let us let us know what you think about bond jake where where can they find you yeah i'm very simple i'm at jake tropila j-a-k-e-t-r-o-p-i-l-a you can hit me up on uh, uh twitter and uh, on letterboxd uh, also, I'm a, uh, I'm a film critic over at uh, filminquiry.com, and uh, while this series went on, I also went and wrote in-depth uh, analyses on each of the Bond films leading up to No Time to Die, which I also have a published uh, review for of that as well. So if you're interested, you can check out my work at Film Inquiry. Uh, also, if you just want to shout out to the uh, OV team, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Optimism Vaccine. Uh, we can also be reached at optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Let us know your favorite moments in the uh, the franchise. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we're happy to hear from you anytime. Also, be sure to, uh, you know, if you haven't done so already, if you're a new listener uh, and you like what you hear, you know, we got plenty more good things coming. We have a new episode out every week. Uh, so check check us out at uh, subscribe and give us a good five-star review. Also, be sure to support us on Patreon where we have bonus episodes and uh, other writings and requests that you can uh, get from us there. So a lot of great stuff that we have to offer. Again, I thank you all for listening and taking this journey with us. And uh, Jack, do you have anything else that you want to add? No, it's just keep tuning in and then we'll, I guess, you know, keep making Bond movies. Barbara Broccoli, if you're listening, keep going. Keep, keep going, please. We will come back for more. And uh, yeah, with that, the For Your Ears... For your ears only podcast will return. The time in the world. Time enough for life to unfold. All the precious things love has in store. We have all 
the love. 